Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogania Saturdays. Today is Saturday, August 5th, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. During a phone conversation, which we had the other day, I made the remark to Pastor Mark Downey that rather than the children of Israel throwing their crumbs to the dogs, today we are in a situation where the dogs are throwing crumbs to the children of Israel. When he told me that he had explained very much that same situation recently in a sermon, well, I had called to ask him if he had anything that he would like to present at Christagenia this weekend, and now here we are with that sermon. The title of Mark's sermon is, O Lazarus, Where Art Thou? It is in two parts. Tonight we will listen to part one. This is not a reference to the Lazarus who was resurrected by Christ, the brother of Martha and Mary, but rather it refers to the impoverished Lazarus of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. This Lazarus is indeed one of the children hoping for crumbs to fall from the table of the dogs. Mark, I will probably ask you to present the second and final part of this sermon here in the months to come. Is there anything you want to say that can summarize the general theme of these sermons for us? Well, first, let me thank you for inviting me once again. It's always a pleasure to uh, be with you and, and serve the Christian identity community. Um, with good messages. Hopefully this will be another good message tonight. But uh, first I'd like to open with a prayer, if I may. Of course, that's your custom. I sort of forgot that. I apologize. (laughs) Our Father in Heaven, we are so blessed in Christian identity to have the understanding of who is who in the Bible. However, our people are cursed when they call good evil and evil good two opposites that can never come together. And so it is with Jacob Israel and Esau Edom, that is, the white race and the Jews. Christ especially wanted the true Israelites to be able to identify the evil Antichrist. We pray that with your Holy Spirit, you will guide our words tonight to convey this great parable between the children of God and the enemies of God. May it bring to the listeners a new awakening in preparation for that wondrous day when we arise and thresh with justification and righteousness. In the mighty name of our kinsman Redeemer, Jesus the Christ, amen. Amen. That's the day we all await. Well, um, yeah, this... um, was something I put together, oh gosh, 15 years ago, and had almost forgotten about it. It's, it wasn't um, on our website until just a couple of weeks ago. I uh, had gotten a letter from, I have a prison ministry, and had gotten a letter from a real active uh, group of identity Christians in Texas, and they asked me if I had any um, uh, VHS uh, tapes. And I got a whole cupboard full, but I, I never use them anymore because uh, 
in this day and age, everybody has CDs. So I, I grabbed a handful of um, old messages and, and sent them, uh, one of which was uh, the rich man, Lazarus, and uh, got a letter back, and, and they were just thrilled to hear about some of these things that nobody had ever told them before. And so it's uh, my hope this evening that um, playing this new uh, revision uh, a little later that uh, it will be um, uh, uh, heard by those with ears to hear. Uh, Because one thing we'll learn about this is that um, uh, not everything that Christ said was meant for others to hear or understand. And um, this part one is simply the first three verses of the parable, uh, which I took from Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 21. Uh, the entire parable goes to verse 31. Uh, and this is just in order to identify the characters and what they represent. Uh, Christ used symbolic language uh, for a good reason. He said in Matthew 13:34, All these things Jesus spoke unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable, spoke he not unto them. And Jesus told his students, unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to others in parables, that seeing they might not see, and hearing they might not understand. That's Luke 8.10. Well, there are some so-called Bible scholars that don't think this is a parable. And so I'd like to just take a little bit of time uh, before we play the message and say why it is a parable. Well, well, right. Now, let me say first that when I presented my own commentary on this parable several years ago in my series of Luke commentaries, I I may have concentrated too much on the application and and the circumstances and probably not enough on the interpretation, but I was also trying to refute the common interpretation given by denominational churches that insist that this is some sort of um, story depicting reality, real circumstances, rather than a parable. So so I was having the same problem, and, and that was five years ago, and I focused on that instead of the interpretation, but I was trying to explain that this is indeed a parable. Well, and with good cause, uh, you had uh, every reason to give that explanation, because for far too long, um, these verses have been butchered, shall we say, by churchianity, and um, the, the true message that Christ was conveying uh, is exactly for and tailored to a Christian identity crowd. Uh, just in context, uh, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus was preceded by another parable of the uh, unjust steward. And... Um, 
Jesus was out there in the, the public square and and uh, was being harassed and subjected to these armchair critics, uh, so-called um, theologians, priests, the priest craft that I call it, and uh, people that were mocking him. Uh, in Luke 16, 14, just before it starts into the parable, it says the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. In Luke's gospel, there are six other parables that open with either a certain man or there was a certain man, and this would strongly support um, this parable in Luke as verse 19 begins, there was a certain rich man. And um, some some critics like to say that, well, there's no other parable that has ever named somebody by name, uh, meaning Lazarus. But as um, our listeners will see when we get into the message, I explain exactly why Christ named him. And names in the Bible are significant and usually carry some kind of connotation or meaning. Yes, especially in Hebrew, but Lazarus, I believe, is a name that comes to us from Hebrew. Yeah, and I'll, I'll get to that in just a moment and, and touch on that. But, you know, more than anything, <laughs> it, it's just absurd to think that it's literal. Uh, as the false church has misrepresented the, the venues or locations to really what they've done over the years, centuries, is to promote a fear of hell. And um, uh, that is really not supported by Scripture. One of the things that really struck me in the um, in verse 21 of the three verses that I engage in was the imperative of what it calls the great gulf. Now, through the years, I've I've heard the term unbridgeable gulf, and and there's other translations of this verse that call it a chasm or abyss. And in the King James, I think it says, and besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed by which those wishing to pass across from here to you are not able, neither from there to us may they cross. You know, this isn't about two guys, but rather the eternal conflict between those parties that I mentioned in our opening prayer tonight, Jacob Israel and Esau Edom, in other words, the white race and the Jews. Now, the only way I think to interpret this parable is, is from a Christian identity perspective. And the failure to understand Luke 16, I think, will just continue the curses of universalism and uh, all these Jewish fables that attach themselves to 
the literal renditions of Luke here. But you know, Bill, for identity Christians who love our race and have no qualms about being called a racist or embrace racism, the Bible doesn't get much more racist than Luke 16 here because Christ was indeed indicting the Pharisees and they knew that all these labels that he was using (laughs) were directed against them. So I'm proud to present this parable because it discriminates. I know that's a total shock to Judeo-Christians or churchianity because they think discrimination is unbiblical. But that's exactly what this parable is all about. It's against those whom God does not want. Period. That's his adversaries and all those sneering mockers that I mentioned earlier that really are today's modern Jews who have descended from the Pharisees. Well, just to understand what a parable is, it's, it's just a fictional story to teach a lesson by illustration. Um... It is if... um, Parabole means to throw beside something. That's the literal meaning of the term. So a parable is a story that that compares something. Christ is comparing um, a a reality to this story. The story itself isn't reality but it's an allegory that represents facts of reality. That's the way I see it. Yes, and sometimes I like to just uh, get to the point and and throw out the bottom line from the get-go. And um, I believe the story is if, if nobody in this life will help us, God will. And, and that's the clue as to why Christ named uh, our person of interest, Lazarus, in this parable, because in the Hebrew, it's the name Eleazar. And Eleazar means the one whom God will help. Correct. So I think the moral of the story uh, is not only that that God will help us. And, you know, Lord knows that there are so many people, are people out there that are without hope, without direction in their lives, that if we can believe just this one lesson from this parable, is that if everybody else fails you, God won't. God will always help those that seek him. But I think the moral of the story, because there's two parties here, is that the love of great wealth will become a great curse. 
and it will be deserving of the world's greatest destruction ever. And we can read in plenty of places in both the Old and New Testament where there will be a complete obliteration of these people we call today Jews. And what greater representation than the rich man than the dynasty of the House of Rothschilds? Uh, which is kind of funny because whenever you hear old Forbes or Fortune 500 uh, listing the world's richest people, for some reason, the Rothschilds are never mentioned. <laughs> uh, I'd like to mention just also one thing. I noticed that on your promo uh, of the program tonight on your home page, you, you had a picture, a graphic of Gustav Dorr's uh, woodcut, which if you look closely... Uh, I showed this to a number of people in our church, and all of them correctly identified the rich man as a Negro. Isn't that interesting? Well, he looks pretty swarthy, and, and, and you're being too kind because I stole the picture from your article. I mean, I'll tell the truth about that. <laughs> well, I'm glad you did. Um, but there's there's also a, um, a photo of um, Laura Bush a wife of George W., and she's in the White House kitchen with half a dozen rabbis commemorating our house, the White House, as a kosher kitchen. And, uh, and, and I chose that picture because uh, there's one part in the parable where... It's talking about how the rich man just feasted every day, and and uh, nothing was uh, too far elegant for his taste. And um, uh, ironic that the Pharisees, the Herodians, tried to uh, uh, depict themselves as the uh, the priesthood of of Israel, but as we know, Israel only had so many feast days during the year, and they acted as if every day was a feast day, making the feast days rather meaningless. And that's what Jews have done to the name Israel and their impersonation. And there's one more illustration, which is not on my website, but I have a link. And uh, it's from a rather unusual source. Uh, some people as old as me might remember a cartoonist by the name of Robert Crumb from the late 60s and 70s. Uh, probably his most popular character was Mr. Natural and... Uh, the saying, keep on trucking. Well, he did another, uh, a, a bunch of underground comics and, and whatnot, which I think come very close to pornographic. But he did this one block of cartoons, which I don't think 
any modern or contemporary artwork depicts better than the rich man and Lazarus. So the uh, the link is there uh, in the text, and you can go look at it for yourself if you want. Uh, just one more thing here, Bill, and that is uh, when we do part two, uh, we'll explore the rest of the parable in Luke, which will be verses 22 through 31, where the fortunes are completely reversed between the antagonist and protagonist. And that in itself is rich with, with wisdom and reality. And I try and take it to the next level so that we can identify who the rich man and Lazarus is today. So, with that being said, I uh, hope I've given a somewhat uh, good briefing, synopsis of what our people are going to hear tonight. Well, well right. And, and the, the racial aspect, I, I believe, is certainly there. But the parable of the rich man and Lazarus basically reflects the words of Yahshua Christ, the words of Jesus Christ, in, in the Sermon on the Mount where, reading Luke's version, he says, Blessed are the poor, because yours is the kingdom of heaven. But woe to you who are wealthy, because you hold, or you have, your consolation. So the parable is nevertheless a warning to the wealthy among the children of Israel, because to whom much is given, much much would be expected. We're told in um, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, that when Yahweh gives us wealth or the ability to acquire wealth we have that ability he gives us that ability so that he may establish his kingdom here on earth using those people to help establish his kingdom here on earth and and that message was given to the children of Israel as they occupied the land of Canaan however it's just as relevant today and and the apostle James says in, in James chapter 5, Go to now, ye rich men, and weep and howl, for your misery shall come upon you. Because when we hoard inordinate wealth, we are doing wrong by our brethren. And and, and that's just natural. James, in, in the context of James chapter 5, he's telling these rich men that they just didn't pay their laborers enough, which is why they have such inordinate wealth. We don't require inordinate wealth in order to have a nice um, healthy and and satisfying Christian life. What we require is to help build the kingdom of heaven so that we could store up treasure in heaven where it counts, right? So, the rich man and Lazarus if you acquire inordinate wealth today, look at uh, I'm going to use the immediate example as Donald Trump, right? Here's a man that's inquired, acquired billions of dollars and he's totally in bed with and sold out to the enemies of God. He's totally in bed with these Jews and, and <laughs> with this collective Satan. So what good is he to his people? That this is, you know, Satan... Yahweh God, Yahweh knows, he understands 
what's going to happen to men. He understands the craft of the devil, so to speak, and and the wiles of the devil. It's only natural that godly men um, seek the things of God and that the children of the devil, so to speak, that they plot and and seek to rule over us and destroy us and and replace God with themselves. That's the original rebellion. That that's a facet of the original rebellion against God. That that um set history on the course that it has. So where Satan brags, where the devil brags in Luke chapter four, that all of the kingdoms of this world were his and he will give them to whom he wishes well, well that's only the international Jew that's only the Rothschilds of their time doing what comes naturally to them it, it comes naturally to them and we, when we sin as a people they come to rule over us when we depart from our God they come to rule over us instead these are the rich men in the story of the rich man and Lazarus there there should be no doubt and this is a parable in uh, part two I have an actual quotation from Donald Trump where he says I am great because I am rich <laughs> right and and in fact he he accumulated that wealth but he didn't accumulate it out of anything that he did that was great he didn't accumulate it by his own hand Yahweh says in Deuteronomy chapter 8 don't you go thinking and I'm paraphrasing of course don't you go thinking that by your own hand you acquired this wealth I gave you the ability to acquire this wealth so that I may establish my kingdom using the wealthy man as a vehicle by which he would help establish his kingdom because a godly wealthy man it is going to do the right things and and employ his brethren or, or help his brethren do the things that he's done or whatever he has to do to help establish his own people and and Donald Trump hasn't done that Donald Trump has just been a tool for the enemy and and he's just one wealthy man it's an example I mean there are many others look look at that um Warren Buffett it is another outstanding example it if indeed these men are of Jacob Israel and aren't of Isari Dom because we can we can't be certain about that in the rich man in Lazarus and the the rich man in Lazarus Abraham refers to the rich man as his child and and that's fine because it's true whether or not he's an Edomite or an Israelite but the rich men of Palestine at the time of Christ for the most part they were Edomites the Edomites had controlled the kingdom for a hundred and fifty years before the before the time of Christ at, at least for eighty years before the time of Christ since Herod was made king and and a little before that and they were um, embedded into the kingdom and the administration and the offices of the priests and, and into all the bureaucracy. And the Herods had um, 
been great sycophants to all the Roman emperors and, and received all sorts of favors from the Roman emperors, even extending beyond the borders of Judea, where they were given kingdoms beyond Judea, which very few people notice in the pages of Flavius Josephus, but it's there. So, so we see the Edomite power at, at its peak at the time of Christ. It's actually God's law that if you've been blessed with abundance, you're required to help those that are underprivileged, that don't have. Absolutely. And and we, we had um, discussed that. It's in Exodus chapter 16. The children of Israel are in the desert. They're gathering manna in order to feed themselves. And it's only natural that, that some men and women can gather manna a lot more quickly and efficiently than other men and women. I mean, we don't all have the same abilities. And in Exodus chapter 16, even though some men may gather much more than others, they were required to distribute it evenly. And and it says, and when they did meet it with an omer, which means that when they did distribute it out with an omer, which was like a measuring bowl, right, or a measuring utensil he that gathered much had nothing over and he that gathered little had no lack they gathered every man according to his eating in other words and and this is going to sound communistic but it's not in in other words everybody ate and they all ate what they needed to eat to eat to survive regardless of how much they gathered and and that's not communism in the sense that we all have an equal share of property. If you examine how the property in the kingdom was distributed, some men had better parcels than others based on their merits or where they stood in their family. So it's not a communism of property, but it's making certain that all of the basic needs of each and every one of us are met, that we all eat. And, and that's not communism. That's the, um, the, the basic Christian responsibility to make sure that your kingdom, your people are sustained and, and have the ability to survive and, and to work towards a common goal. Well, communism was Jewish and it was, it was based, uh, even though it, it talked about class warfare, your upper echelons uh, were living high on the hog, and it was based on uh, materialism and greed. Well, well, right. While everybody else, the the impoverished uh, common people, languished in in um, poverty, uh, the bigwigs in the Communist Party, the Jews, were exactly like the rich men in the parable. Right. Well, communism was sold to the world as something other than what it really was in practice. In practice, it was just the rule of a Jewish mob over a Christian nation. And and that's all it was, and gave them license to loot and pillage that nation in, in ways yeah. that went far beyond economics. It promised economic salvation, but uh, brought slavery. <laughs> Yeah, right. Well, that's what the, the, the Jews do. That's the pattern. That's what we're warned about in the Bible. That they'll promise you liberty and make you the children of corruption. It, it, it's an old trick. But you know, the thing about greed, I'm also reminded about the, the manna 
on the Sabbath, they were not allowed to gather. And if they did, as I recall, it spoiled on them. Yes, they were. It was a built-in factor where if you thought you could get more than what you deserved or disobey the law, then you suffered the consequences. Right. If you tried to stockpile it, it also spoiled. Yeah. Hoarding, I guess they call it today. Yes. Yes, and that's that that's um that's presented to us in the manner in which it is as as a parable, as an, an a parable, as an, an example as to how we should conduct our own economies in our Christian nations. That you, you know, it's fine if you want to um work harder and build a bigger house than me. You you deserve that because you worked harder. And and that's fine. But we should all eat. And of course he who doesn't work should need it all, right? So so we should all work to the best of our ability, but that should guarantee that we all at least eat, that we have the basic um necessities of life and and that's Christian. It's not communism, it's Christian socialism. And and beyond that, if you want to work hard and, and get ahead and, and have more oxen or, or a nicer wagon or a bigger car, that that's fine. That's your that that's your liberty to do so. Nobody's stopping you from doing that. There's nothing in yep. scripture that would stop that. People so we, shouldn't get the idea that this parable is denouncing wealth. Right. Because uh the, the the Word of God does promote a, a work ethic. And uh, if you work for what you get, uh, there's every reason for you to keep it and, and to prosper. Nothing wrong with that. Well, well, Zacchaeus is the perfect example, I think, in Scripture where, where, where he um, was so happy to meet the Messiah, to see Christ, that he promised to give away half of his wealth. Now Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, he was a really, really rich man. And giving away half of his wealth would be like Warren Buffett giving away half of his wealth. He's still going to live life as a really, really rich man. Just maybe drop one really, right? <laughs> and he's still going to live a, a life of um basic luxury compared to most people if he gave away half of his wealth. And and Zacchaeus was justified by Christ for giving away half of his wealth. And and he was applauded for that. So we see that it's not wrong to have wealth, it's what you do with it. And and you're not required to give away all of your wealth and live as a hermit. And nobody would encourage anybody to do that, except for maybe the Roman Catholics or some of these Pentecostal. I'm not sure, right? So some of these churches, they want your wealth, right? So that they could have it. But no, nobody's requiring anybody to do that. It, it's to manage your, 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 when you're blessed with wealth, to manage it wisely and to ensure that at least some of your wealth goes to the furtherance of God's kingdom. That That's what's important. Yes. And I might add that this parable just doesn't stand by itself. I mean, there's much to be said about um, uh, the rich and the poor. And... Um, uh, you can you can certainly uh, enhance this study with a plethora of uh, other supporting uh, scripture. 
blessed are the poor. Absolutely. Or it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom. Right. And you can just go on and on. Right, absolutely. And and that's not that yet you know, there's a lot of um well, especially with these sixties hippies, right? That these um Wow, that there's a word for them that is lost to me right now. But but these Christians or, or these pseudo Christians that that try to twist the New Testament into Marxism and it's not Marxist at all. It respects property rights. Christianity fully respects property rights. But it, if you really want to please God, you're going to and and you're wealthy, you're just going to manage your wealth wisely and distribute it wisely in advancement of the kingdom of heaven and and try to seek to do his will because that's what he wants of you and and that's that that's um not marxist at all that that is good stewardship of what you have been blessed with because what you've been blessed with comes donald trump his money didn't come from from um his own hand. I don't think the guy's ever really broke a sweat in his life in, in labor. <laughs> yeah, it, it's come from um, God's blessings on him as a trial for him, and and that that when you're a wealthy man, when you're wealthy at that level, I mean, wealth is relative, right? When you're wealthy at that level, that that's a trial, that's a test on you, and and if you fail the test, well. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus is a good example of the the difficulty you might face at, at the judgment of the great day. Well, interestingly, Trump's mentor um, and friend of his father was a Jewish financier. Taught right. him all the, the tricks of finance. I'm really um, almost persuaded that the Trumps must be cryptos myself, and I have several reasons for believing that, but I don't come out and and state it as a fact, because I certainly can't prove it. There's a lot of um, super wealthy people that appear to be Anglos, and, and I'm not doubting that None of our, that any of our people have the ability to accumulate great amount, a great amount of wealth, but you, you, you just wonder about most of them, whether or not they're really our people or not, or, or whether they are actually Jews. Well, I figure if they quack like a duck and they waddle like a duck, they must be a duck. <laughs> well, and that's the the bottom line is that we should measure them by their fruits, right? We know them by their fruits, and if they're acting like the enemy, if they're engaged in in this promotion of globalism and and international trade and all of the other aspects of mystery Babylon which Christians should be, should despise and stand against, if any of our people are engaged in that sort of behavior, then they have um, they have to be treated like the enemies of God because they're functioning like the enemies of God. And, and in the end, God will sort it out. Yes. And if I can get something off my chest just momentarily here, I am flabbergasted how anybody who calls himself a pastor in Christian identity can still support Trump when 
He has packed his administration with Jews. He has given all those offices pertaining to money to Jews. Right. And how he has filled the swamp with Jews rather than drain it. Absolutely. There's no difference between and, Trump and, and the Bushes and Trump and the Clintons. There's no difference. It, it really makes me scratch my head, Bill, how, how some Christian identity, uh, I'll say it, are fools that, that still ask people to pray for the president. I just don't see it. You, you know, we should be... The, the, the <laughs> We should be praying that the will of God is fulfilled because the handwriting is on a wall that Babylon is going to fall and we have no political solution. That These people that cling to political solutions aren't really Christian identity. That They're just um, sort of racially aware, maybe a little bit, um, Judeo-Christians. That there's a big difference between a Dave Barley who, who thinks that Trump is Cyrus, right? And 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 a um, and an identity Christian. I don't consider them identity Christians at all. I, I wrote three or four times long before the election that Donald Trump exists to make white nationalists look stupid, and and I stand by that. And I've been uh, I've been justified for those statements that I made a year before the election. And I'm certainly vindicated. Those he yes. actually has made all these white nationalists look stupid, and and a lot of them, identity Christians or not, are still making excuses for them. Oh, he can only do so much. Oh, oh he has to deal with this or deal with that. No, they're making excuses for him. He, he was going to put Hillary in prison, and and as soon as he got elected, he recanted on that. He was going to drain the swamp, and like you said, he filled the swamp. Well, you know, if if Trump had drained the swamp, the alt-right frogs would have no refuge right now. They need the swamp, and they're still in it. That's where frogs thrive. Yes, it is. And, and they'd be nothing without the swamp. They'd be dried-up <laughs> carcasses on the side of the road. Well, with this, we'll, we'll listen to your sermon, The Rich Man and, and Lazarus, O Lazarus, Where Art Thou, Part 1. And we'll play Part 2 in the weeks to come. And thank you for being here. Very good. Praise Christ. It's Luke 16, verses 24 through 26. And calling out, he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus in order that he may dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am suffering in this fire. But Abraham answered, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here while you are left to suffer. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed by which those willing to pass across from here to you are not able. Neither from there to us may they cross. You may be seated. 
Good morning. Title of today's message is, Oh, Lazarus, Where Art Thou? And you know, the Bible is not one of the greatest books ever written. It is the greatest book ever written. We are warned that if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. The warning is also found in Deuteronomy 4.2 and 12.32. And yet this is exactly what has happened. The reason... For this adulteration is an irrevocable decree, a vast impassable chasm between two entities. And we will identify them today and show you how it has been Judaized. Why is the abyss impossible to traverse? Will no tears of heartfelt repentance build a bridge for such a repair? we will be investigating the parable of the rich man and Lazarus found in Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. And it has been terribly botched and mangled by churchianity. But we will repair and preserve the original lesson, which can only be understood from a Christian identity perspective. There's a lot of talk in politics these days about obstructionism, but the real roadblock has been religious. The state church has always been a tool of antichrist to supplant the government of Christ with the government of man. The one world religion of Babylon is in contradistinction to the kingdom of heaven. And this is what predominates the Christian landscape today, an apostate church run amok. Some even have the audacity to call their church the bridge, uh, which is in our own backyard right here in Kentucky, which I've mentioned before. This is one bridge that God does not condone and should be burned to a crisp. Eventually, All of Israel shall be saved, and none else. Rather than wasting a lot of time correcting errors and keeping you in suspense about this parable, let me just say what it is not. And after I explain what it is, the former theology will evaporate like a dried-up riverbed. Because without implied consent, your consent, it cannot biblically flow with a modicum of common sense. The great gulf between the rich man and Lazarus is not a glimpse of what existence in the afterlife is like. The death card and the selling of indulgences is what prompted the Protestant Reformation, and yet even they have slipped into being so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good. Because they 
exploit Luke to go along with a spiritual charade. Luke would no doubt be upset about such a canard. Scripture itself contradicts the superstitions of heaven and hell. Modern pulpit pimps have isolated the parable as a literal rendition from its original context as a parable and used it as a means of fear-mongering. Thus, a denominational affiliation results from a fear of hell, especially the shake-and-bake, barbecue-bit, pit variety of endless torture, which would nullify the dozens of passages that say his mercy endureth forever. This is serious because we are determining the character of God and the meaning of Scripture. Is God the master torturer with a priesthood of Torquemadas who just so happened to be the first Grand Inquisitor of Spain and a converso, a Jew who converted to Roman Catholicism? Before we go any further, let's prove that this is a parable and not a literal story, as some would have you believe. Is it just a story about economics and the status of the dearly departed, or does it have a deeper racial message? Is it literal or figurative? We can see from the context of chapter 16 that there's already a parable in verses 1 through 13, that is, the parable of the unjust steward and that Jesus was out in the public square, subjected to critics and and mockers. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. Everything you hear today ridiculing Jesus comes from the descendants of the Pharisees, the Jews, and their useful idiots. Jesus delivered this parable to his adversaries. He described them as being liars, covetous, hypocrites, full of thievery, self-indulgent, iniquitous, and murderers. Jesus told his students, Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to others in parables that seeing they might not see, and hearing they might not understand. Matthew describes how Jesus spoke to the multitudes in parables. Quote, All these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spoke he not unto them. So, Jesus was in the habit of speaking in parables to people that were not his disciples. If We are to believe that this story happened in real time and Jesus was merely transcribing an event from which we are to glean a lesson, then it must be supported by other biblical witnesses. In the narrative, Abraham seems to indicate that the reason why the rich man was suffering in the afterlife was because during his life he had received good things while Lazarus had received evil things. Quote, You 
in your lifetime received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. End quote. The idea of literally living in poverty and enduring dire circumstances in this life in order to get your lottery mansion in the afterlife is not to be found in the scriptures. Not even Job was willingly at peace with his trials and tribulations, although he endured the adversity just as Jesus did. In Luke's gospel, there are six other parables that open with either a certain man or there was a certain man. And this would strongly support Luke 16, verses 19 through 31, being a parable as verse 19 begins, there was a certain rich man. As a general rule, one should avoid building a doctrine based on a parable because they were originally concealing what God didn't want his enemies to know. It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. Proverbs 25.2 How many Christians today would dream of this story being racial in nature? Hardly any, because they've been sidetracked with a false teaching about immediately going to a place of fiery torment after death like the rich man. And this is the only place in the Bible that posits such an idea, perhaps because the myth was already ingrained in people's minds from paganism and served as a teaching tool. Yes, even though 2 Corinthians 5.8 has tweaked, has been tweaked by a verb in casual conversation to say, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That still doesn't prove when we will be in his presence. I believe the Bible says all people, all Israelites, will be resurrected at the same time at which time they will be rewarded according to their works. Quote, do not be amazed at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of judgment. Conversely, John 3.13 confirms that you won't find anyone going to heaven. Quote, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven the Son of Man, end quote. Well, that pops a lot of bubbles. So many bubbles that they're foaming at the mouth that anyone dare bust their scam of people control. So how did Jesus handle the Edomite Jews, most of whom were the controlling faction of the Pharisees? Quote, all these things spoke Jesus unto the multitude in parables. And without a parable spoke he not unto them, so that it might be fulfilled, that having been spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden 
from the foundation of the world. When he was alone with his disciples, he would elaborate. So do you think these irreverent jerks were still hanging around Christ when he related this narrative about the rich man? Of course they were. They wouldn't miss the opportunity to make sport of the Messiah. But the humor is lost when you think about why the mysteries of the kingdom were given to some and not to others. And those who had it were increased, and those who didn't, more would be taken away. The disciples inquired for the Lord to explain. Quote, and coming forth, the students said to him, For what reason do you speak in parables to them? And replying, he said to them, Because to you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of the heavens, but to those it is not given. For he who has it shall be given to him, and he shall have an abundance. But he who does not have, even that which he has shall be taken from him. For this reason I speak to them in parables, because seeing they shall not see, and hearing they shall not hear, nor shall they understand. And the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled in them which says, By hearing you shall hear, but by no means should you understand. And looking you shall look, and by no means should you see. For the hearts of the, this people are grown fat, and with the ears they hear with difficulty, and their eyes have closed, that at no time should they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, that they should repent, and I shall heal them. But blessed are your eyes, that they shall see, and your ears, that they shall hear. For truly I say to you, that many prophets and righteous men had desired to see the things which you see, and they did not see, and to hear the things which you hear, and they did not hear. End quote. Christ was speaking of himself. And we are likewise his students today, having the advantage of hearing his words and having more than the Judaized versions to learn the lesson he was teaching. It was more than a rich man and a guy named Lazarus. Now some will say it's not fair that we don't all get a fair shake in regards to the truth. Well, whose fault is that? Truth is something you have to love more than anything. Otherwise, you are vulnerable to lies. And if you believe a lie, God will send you strong delusion. Second Thessalonians 2, 10 and 11. The rich man is symbolic of those who were heckling Jesus. The crowds of multiculturalism whose hearts were so hardened that they could not comprehend 
the words of Christ and thus they would never be healed of their mixed blood and religious hypocrisy. They even wrote their own Bible, which is a circumvention of Mosaic law called the Talmud. If Christ told them what Christian identity tells you, they would have killed him prematurely. And they would love to kill us today for telling you the truth. Are we in agreement with God or do we minister to serpents? God forbid the latter. We cast not our pearls before swine, nor did Jesus. The parable is a surreal picture of two opposite characters separated by a great chasm, almost from planet to an off-planet. And yet, they're carrying on a conversation. The graphic illustration at the beginning of our sermon, a woodcut by Gustave Doré, titled Lazarus at the Rich Man's House, is a little bit more down-to-earth to depict the reality of Luke 16. The artist, if you look closely, rendered the rich man, right there, as a Negro. And the setting is his opulent estate, big pillars, and, and you can see all the servants with plates of food on their heads and uh, looks like a, a real grand palace of some sort. So the setting is his opulent estate with Lazarus. Here he is down at the bottom of the steps languishing with some dogs. It kind of reminds me of the quirky cartoonist Robert Crumb drawing a contrast between rich Jews and street beggars, and uh, it's rather of an adult nature, so I have just a link in the footnote, which you'll have to go to the website to see. If Luke 16, verses 19 through 31, is a true, literal story, why aren't the numerous details ever mentioned? Does God just put colorful window dressing in his Word without any meaning? We are told that, quote, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If it's just about two guys going to heaven or hell, why all the extra language? How could the putative interpretation possibly construe a literal reading? 2 Timothy 3.16 says, quote, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be perfect or complete in his divine calling. So let's read the parable word for word with words underlined that have been neglected by Bible scholars and know-it-alls. 
Quote, There was a certain rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and feasted in luxury every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores and longing to eat the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores, and it came to pass that the poor man died, and he was carried away by the angels into the bosom of Abraham. And the rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off, with Lazarus at his side. So he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water, and cool my tongue, because I am in anguish in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received the good things, while Lazarus received the bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you are a great chasm that has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. The rich man responded, Then I ask you, Father, to send Lazarus back to my father's home, for I have five brothers, so that he may testify to them so that they would not come to this place of torment also. But Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let your brothers listen to them. Then the rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded should one be resurrected from the dead. End quote. That's our text for this message. And if someone wants to take it literally, I shudder to think what else they would take literally. Whenever figures of speech are taken literally, it is a dangerous proposition to add or diminish from God's word. The parable is just that, a parable. Please, do you really think that if the non-biblical concepts between heaven and hell were such, that they would be within speaking distance of each other? <laughs> or that Abraham comes out of nowhere as if he was omnipresent throughout the universe to intervene in the dialogue, the many absurd questions that erupt from a literal spin do not offer any moral or spiritual truths. The purpose of a parable is to teach by illustration. A clear example of a parable is the wheat and the tares, using symbolic terms to describe something else, that is, the field is the, wor the world. Tares are antichrist. Wheat are the sons of God. 
and uh, the harvest is the end of the age, etc. In theological debate, literalists say that in no parable is any individual named. The margin note in a King James Schofield version says, Rich men and beggars are common. There is no reason why Jesus may not have had in mind a particular case. In no parable is an individual named, end quote. So that's where we got that idea. And what do we know about Schofield? Well, he was not an honorable man and prostituted himself to the Jew pimp Samuel Untermeyer, directing the Judaizing of the King James for a bargain bribe of 30 pieces of silver. And I'm going to put a link to um, this about Schofield. Um, a while back, Pastor Elmore did an excellent study and history of this character. And uh, if you want to know more about him, uh, go to that sermon. Well, there's a very good reason for Jesus giving depth to the non-literal parable by naming the protagonist Lazarus. But it is not the same Lazarus who was the brother of Martha and Mary. Jesus named the character Lazarus because in Hebrew, it is El-Lazar and means God helps. Or in more simple terms, his name means to one whom God helps. In Hebrew culture, it was customary for those with an abundance of resources, in other words, they were rich, to help the poor. The rich man in this story had gates on his estate for the purpose of keeping the riffraff out. In fact, Helping others was the law. Quote, there will never cease to be some poor people in the land. Therefore, I am commanding you to make sure you open your hand to your fellow Israelites who are needy and poor in your land. Deuteronomy 15.11. You see, the story is not just about the rich, but anybody who does not help their own kind, their own race. The poor man is in such bad health that he has sores all over his body. He doesn't have much going on for him. No food, very little clothing, or shelter. But he does have one thing. Jesus gives him an important name. We should learn this lesson. If nobody else will help us, God will. And that's the rest of the story. Oh, one other thing. El Azar was a servant of Abraham. And universalists, they just love to attempt to make him a non-Israelite or Gentile so that they can teach the Israel people failing to bring forth the kingdom. And therefore, the covenant blessings were transferred to their Eliezer's of the world. 
who are not heirs of God's kingdom through blood, but rather through faith in Christ. That's what they teach, the universalist. But the truth is, Eleazar was an Israelite and a servant, and the covenants have always been closed to non-Israelites. Because of the worldliness of Judaized Christians, charity does not begin at home, but halfway around the world with naked aborigines. Of course, the World Council of Churches don't want to know what Lazarus is symbolic of or even investigate the Hebrew and Greek words, Eleazar, number 499 in the Hebrew, which Strong says is the name of seven Israelites. Or in the Greek, Lazarus, number 2976, the name of two Israelites, one imaginary. The real Lazarus is found in John 11 and 12, who was raised from the dead by Jesus, where there is absolutely no reference or linkage to Luke 16. Now, some Bible scholars have rendered the Lazarus in Luke to mean without help in Thayer's Greek lexicon, whereas John 11's Lazarus means whom God helps. We'll find out why in a moment. A few theologians who happen to be honest Christians admit, quote, attempts to picture the afterlife from it, meaning this parable, should be avoided. Could it be that a literal rendering is untenable? It simply poses too many questions to be intelligently answered. The story must be, upon fair analysis, a parable reinforced with plausible exhibits. Let us now proceed to find the keys to unlock each of the symbols in this parable so that the teachings are plainly understood. Keep in mind that this is a dialogue. The rich man and Lazarus are speaking back and forth. Do you really believe a pastime in heaven is watching the condemned fried up like french fries in perpetuity? Or making occasional wisecracks. How do you like it down there? Or is it hot enough for you? Too bad you can't come up here where it's nice and cool. The first verse in the parable must have been a stinging indictment to those who were wearing purple and fine linen. You know, we take colored garments for granted today. Uh, but back then, a purple fabric, especially a robe, would have been like a $5,000 Giorgio Armani suit, very expensive and tailored for the rich. They were probably not amused at Jesus profiling their lifestyles of the political and religious elite. Jerusalem should have been a shining city for the Adamic race paying homage to their creator. 
But both houses of Israel and Judah went into bondage as if their stint in Egypt wasn't enough. At the time of Christ, Jerusalem was a lot like America is today. Their manifest destiny was diluted and polluted with aliens who would become the head and we would become the tail. The elements characterizing the rich man can be none other than the perfect metaphor of Jews. The Pharisees would have understood that they were the targets in this parable's extreme rebuke. And it confuses people today who cannot identify the characters correctly. Well, purple was the color representing a king or royalty. The house of Judah at the time of Christ had been usurped by non-Judahites in Judea who were mongrel Edomites converted to the religion of Israel under the Maccabees 500 years earlier through conquest. Herod and his clan were Edomites, and over time they amalgamated with Judah, calling themselves Judeans, and later, circa 1750 A.D., shortened to the slang word Jew. They became the ruling class and wore purple and fine linen, befitting only the kings and priests of Israel. They perpetuated a fraud of impersonation all the way up to the present day. They were never true Israelites. They dressed for the part as commanded by God, but 1 Thessalonians 2.15 rightly accuses them, quote, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us, and they please not God and are contrary to man. God instructed Moses in Exodus 28 to make holy garments for the priesthood of Aaron, This should be understood in tandem with the divine law, whereby be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. Deuteronomy 17.15 At least the NIV does One verse right in the Bible. If Jesus were to point out the abomination of an Obama nation, our Lord would be accused of hate speech. And the Pharisees' Southern Poverty Law Center would stick him on their map for special prosecution or persecution or both. When Gideon got the spoils of war, he took purple raiment from the kings. At the crucifixion, the soldiers clothed Jesus with purple and a crown of thorns, mocking his royalty. The rich man also wore linen to embellish his wardrobe of costumes, just as church clowns today dress up in colorful satins and flowing robes. Why? To command respect 
and control the people. The armies of heaven were dressed in pure white linen, Revelation 19.14. And the bride of Christ, also in Revelation, meaning Israel, prepared herself in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. So let's see if we got this right so far. The rich man, that is, the Jewish Pharisees, are supposedly working for God, supposedly administering God's law, and supposedly custodians of the temple in Jerusalem. And all the while, they are in a class above all the common people, becoming exceedingly wealthy in their occupations. However, Christ saw their real occupation was sitting in an authority that did not belong to them. They failed to be good stewards and used their wealth for themselves, which is what the parable teaches. It finally becomes a great curse to these Pharisees. They thought it was quite normal that Plenty and poverty would dwell side by side and have no desire to relieve the poor. Plenty, they thought, was a sign of God's favor. But poverty was a sign of his judgment, which they assumed was a mystery only known by God. So it wasn't any of their business. This parable of Jesus, on the other hand, was to show that God was not like that. Material possessions are given by God in trust to show that he cares for the needy. If one does not behave in a similar godly manner, it is clear that the materialism of the world rather than God is his master. Our interpretation of this parable is limited to the cold, hard facts that separate the white race from all others. Others will try and convince you that the almighty church has replaced God's chosen people as a chosen generation, which properly translated says a chosen race, a royal priesthood, royal, a holy nation, holy meaning racially pure, a people for his own, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2.9 Our parable is about a reversal of fortunes, not abolishing the promises of God. Doesn't this hoax Identity theft from Revelation 2, 9 and 3, 9. Remind you of Mystery Babylon where we read, Whoa, whoa, the great city. She who was clothed in, get this, fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in an hour, such great, Riches are made desolate. 
I can't help but see a strong parallel from the parable to the fate that awaits those whom Christ rebuked in Revelation 18, verses 5 through 8. Quote, For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. Repay her the same way she repaid others. Pay her back double, corresponding to her deeds. In the cup she mixed mixed double the amount for her. How much she has glorified herself and lived deliciously. So much torment and sorrow give her. For she said in her heart, I sit a queen. I am no widow and shall see no sorrow. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall utterly burn with fire, for strong is the Lord who judges her. End quote. The Jewish umbrella covering the world of mongrelization will be utterly destroyed. Scripture does not teach that the wicked will burn in hell fire for infinity, but rather will be gone forever. And we're still in Luke 16, verse 19, and I'm on page 9 here. Besides Jesus being the fashion police, he was, was he also a food critic? Just how does a Jew eat? In our story, it says he feasted. But wait, it says he feasted in luxury. But wait, there's more. It says he feasted in luxury every day. It sounds like he lived deliciously. It would be like, hey, honey, what's for dinner? And... It would be a five-star gourmet restaurant in your home with the meal prepared by a master chef, not just for a birthday party or special occasion, but like for dinner every single night. Maybe it was something like Laura Bush transforming the White House into a kosher kitchen. I couldn't help resist showing you this picture here of those who live deliciously. Israel had special feast days. We all know that, but they weren't every day. If they did, then that means every day was a Sabbath, which would marginalize its significance. Jesus is telling us that the rich man's appetites are so special to reach a level of daily luxury that he doesn't keep Sabbath to rise above his normal standards other than the empty and meaningless rituals to maintain the facade. Just as Messianic Jews try to show themselves to be Christians, the young rich Pharisee in Mark 10, 17 through 22 tried to show himself worthy of future rewards in heaven by claiming sinlessness of the law. But 
Christ knew the level of his piety and told him to sell his possessions, give it to the poor, and follow him, and he'll have all he wants. This the young Jew could not do and walked away pouting. The poor man would have been happy to eat the scraps from the rich man's table. The rich are covered in luxury, while the poor are covered in sores. The leadership in Judea couldn't figure out health care any more than modern-day Pharisees who could care less about the nation's health. Instead, it all interlocks into the insurance gambling of Babylon and sorcery. The Greek word for sorcery is pharmakia, from which we get the word pharmacy or drugs. For thy merchants were great men of the earth, for by thy sorceries were all nations deceived. Spiritual health demands priorities in life. Whoever shuts his ears at the cry of the poor, he also shall cry himself, but shall not be heard. Jesus also said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Do you see the ironic connection between the rich and the poor? Between those weeping and gnashing of teeth and those whose tears are wiped away? The new aristocracy in America is not royal births, but royal paychecks and royal teas. Its wealth is drunken on the blood of the saints and martyrs of Jesus, and blood stains the great whore called religion that masquerades in the clothing of righteousness by way of deception. These Wealthy politicians and evangelists dominate and control the very elect. At least these Pharisees and scribes must have felt a bit, a bit self-conscious as Jesus described them. But today's hypocrites have no shame. And even after caught in lie after lie, they lie more. Jesus said they sat in Moses' seat, meaning they had both religious and civil authority over white people in Judea. Jesus accused them of all the righteous blood that's been shed upon the earth. It makes you wonder about how many people have died in their Jew wars, their poison food, their sciences, etc., in order to get rich. And in her, meaning Mystery Babylon, was found all that were slain upon the earth. Revelation 18.24 Some Jews will look for scapegoats, while others brag about the death of Christ, saying, the Romans did it. However, when the Pharisees conspired to kill Christ, they said, if we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. 
And the Romans shall come and take away both our place, meaning authority, and nation. Right now, we are living in the first three verses of our parable. Because the Zionist occupational government has put the white race into captivity. Christ paints a grisly picture of the beggar so incapacitated that dogs come to lick his sickening skin. Even more horrific, though, is Christ describing the scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. They live, but are morally dead. The zombies among us. The living dead is now an entertainment genre. Who would produce such an appalling storyline? It would be shameless Jewish Hollywood. The woes continue for this infestation of mammon parasites in mammon in Matthew 23:27, quote, "For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness." In other words, Jesus is saying, "You're dead. You have nothing but dead works." And in this parable, the rich man dies. In Jewish movies, we sometimes see someone die, and yet their so-called disembodied spirit or ghost can be seen and heard by some people. I guess if you have a seance or an Ouija board, you can tune into the show. Christ is not without humor, using this literary device to mirror the real nature of Jews. That is dead man talking. Even though Jews are spiritually dead, people still regard them as being spiritually alive. The rich man died, but he kept on yakking away, whining and complaining about his persecution. He had rulership and wealth. That's what Jews want. To rule the world where every Jew had 2,000 Goyim slaves. That's their idea of a good life. For 2,000 years, they have refrained from water, which in the parable is a metaphor for the word of God, which gives life. But no, the Jew doesn't want any stinking life. They want money. They would rather be actors, forever lamenting the torment of living their Holocaust fantasies. And they must forever insist that Christians, the white ones, who are the literal children of Abraham, must help the Jews. Playing the broken record of Genesis 12.3, That if you curse the Jew, then God will curse you. However, since the Jew has wormed his way into the leadership 
of the American church and state and being blessed with wheelbarrows full of money, our help has only brought a pantheon of satanic gods and idols. Jesus is identifying a certain people group, if I may borrow a term from Ken Ham, not a certain man, which relates prophetically to the end of the age and the two prongs of Mystery Babylon, Talmudic Judaism, and Roman Catholicism. There are two characters in Luke 16, in Genesis 3.15, and thereafter a conflict which seems eternal, but will eventually come to an end between Jacob Israel and Esau Edom between the racially pure people of God and the world of mongrelization. We have been sorely judged by God for again whoring after strange gods of Judaism. We have the spiritual sores on the body of Christ to prove that it is us as a race whom God has and will chastise. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges or whips every son whom he receives. We must be going through a time of Jacob's trouble where most of the nations of Israel are under siege and experiencing the golden age of Edom before it collapses. In my earlier research, I had come to a conclusion about these dogs licking the sores of Lazarus. What's that all about? I have some newer theories, but let's look at dogs. In Matthew 15, Jesus identified them in the story of the woman from Canaan who sought help for her sick daughter. He, Jesus, said it wasn't right to take the bread from the children, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and throw it to the dogs, non-Israelites, because he said earlier in verse 24, I am sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She retorted, That's the truth, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the table. Well, maybe you don't like calling them dogs, but there's no way of getting around the word of God referring to non-whites as dogs. I guess it's cool for Negroes to call each other dog these days. To the far-gone liberal mindset, way out in left field these days, they should understand that the woman accepted and knew her place in society, and therefore Jesus blessed her and healed her daughter. It is increasingly becoming self-evident that the Jew is agitating the heathens to rage and strike terror in the streets. So I really can't hold my breath expecting non-whites to help whites as a whole. 
When our people came to America fleeing religious persecution, they were sorely traumatized with their voyages and first colonies. But the Indians in Plymouth Colony did help them survive the harsh winter. And I give a brief history of their experience in my sermon, Giving Thanks. Not all Indians were so passive as the westward trek was one of brutal savagery. It's really up to the dogs as to whether they are peaceful or hostile. Will they lick or will they bite? They are unpredictable. Not every dog belongs to the NAABP, the National Association for the Advancement of Barking Pets. Okay, a delayed reaction. Uh, and are not <laughs> totally antagonized against us by antichrist agitators who hate it when the coloreds are respectful and thankful for white people. They were somewhat domesticated and trained to admire the South, giving them a better life than Africa, and willingly fought during the Civil War against the North. Most dogs prefer Christian government to communist regimes. The sooner we realize that the Bible is exclusionary, excluding racial aliens from our land, the sooner real salvation will come to Israel. When God kicked Israel out of Samaria and cast them among the heathen, they lost their identity and were called by new names. They were ill-fed, for they no longer had God's word to eat, and their sicknesses from sin were not healed. They were ruled by force and cruelty. All the more reason and need for a kinsman redeemer. When Isaiah pictured Israel in her sinful state, he said, from the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no health, but only wounds and welts and putrefying sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. So too we see Lazarus having these sores or some kind of hardship or vexation. Try and figure out what our afflictions are today and what dogs licking it means. I tried to figure out another passage that would help explain. In 1 Kings 22.38, it's talking about the aftermath of a great battle between Israel and Syria where King Jehoshaphat was killed and his chariot is a bloody mess and is being cleaned up. Even the dogs licked up his blood. This was probably a literal dog. But the idea is washing and cleaning it up. Although our people are being taxed to death and decadence is making us the tail and our enemies the head, somehow the scheme of divine providence, there is very little that non-whites can do for us.
but they may make gestures like a dog licking a sore, which venerates or shows reverence to God's chosen people by helping us clean up a mess. As Christians, we better know how to deal with the racial aliens, that is, with authority and compassion, just like you would a dog. From an entirely different perspective, there is an implication in ancient Israel that dogs were used to protect property. In Isaiah 56.10, the watchmen were so blind and lazy that they were compared to sleeping dogs unable to bark. The next verse, verse 11, calls them greedy dogs or other Translations say fierce appetites, which can never have enough. And they are shepherds or ministers that cannot understand, all following their own path and intent on personal gain. Taking one look at John Hagee, we can see a pattern of indulgences and a kennel of self-serving ministers who are only focused on their bowl of kibbles. Maybe it was the rich man's dogs who licked the sores of Lazarus, in which case we might find relief in brave whistleblowers, insiders leaving the global plantation for a superior morality. There is a common folk belief from ancient times that saliva from dogs has a cleansing, a healing of wounds. The metaphor would be that God placed something unclean in the presence of Judeans, and that was the watchful eye of the Romans. Not that they were unclean, for they were as white as Israelites. It's just that the culture of Judah did not recognize any other white people than themselves. This was especially hypocritical of the Pharisees, whom the majority were mostly mixed blood. But Christ came for the lost sheep. The Gentiles, or more properly the nations of Israel in dispersion from the Assyrian captivity migrating into Europe, at the time of Christ. Even Peter didn't quite get the import of the Roman centurion Cornelius, who was a devout Christian believer and thought to be unclean. The point is that we may have white people who have not yet come to know Christ and are still in the dark. But when they are quickened by the Holy Spirit, they will be able to add, to aid and abet our plight, lick our sores, so to speak. The poor man who suffers from sores all over his body is usually too weak to walk or work. The AMA quacks prescribe drugs to alleviate the pain without much thought of side effects. But the side effects most certainly affect what is that motivates us to do anything. If we are incapacitated, we're not much different 
than poor Lazarus. But with this parable, let us never forget that we are not without help from God. The God of Israel is our help. He will save us. And God does help us, just as he helped Lazarus and Job and David and Noah and Paul and on and on. Next time, we will look at what happens to Lazarus in the remaining verses and what happens to the stereotypical Lazarus in our society today. It will be good news for the body of Christ healing and preparing herself for a clean and healthy life in the kingdom with Jesus. It would be bad news for the adversaries of God. On that happy note, I pray this lesson was a blessing for you. Thank you.